Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. touch on a couple of headlines here before Dr. Linda Mintel and I jump into uh, the CDC's report from last week uh, at the intersection of mental health, substance use, and suicidal ideation during COVID-19, which uh, some really, really troubling numbers there. Um, Here's one troubling number that is also COVID-related, and that is the 17 million kids whose schools are going back into session online, but because of where those kids live, in particularly rural parts of America, um, those kids are going to be left behind because they don't live in places that have access to high-speed Internet. Okay, I happen to be in one of those communities. So I I know um, the issues that people are facing right now. Nearly 17 million kids live in homes without high-speed Internet. And um, and so even in even as schools are providing laptop computers, um, it's impossible for a kid. Well, there's lots of reasons it's impossible for a kid to sit for seven hours a day looking at a computer screen. Um, but they literally have to be sitting there on time. Uh, it doesn't matter if they are in kindergarten or first grade. They got to be in the chair in front of the screen um, to log in at the appropriate time for these online classes. I recognize this is a real challenge that schools are facing across the country. Let me just also go ahead and tell you, 17 million kids being left behind at this point, um, particularly kids that are, uh, you know, living in places where, um, you know, if you don't have high-speed internet, that's probably saying something about your community and its resources already. Um, And so we're talking about leaving impoverished kids behind, at least in some cases uh, as well. And so let's be mindful of that. Let's be thinking about how the church could creatively help um, if you live in a community where you know this to be the case and it might be possible for your church to become some kind of place where kids could sit and be online during these hours during the day when uh, when they need to be doing this in order to be accessing the education that's being offered to them, uh, let me just encourage you to creative th- creatively think about jumping in. All right, the second headline that I want to touch on here very briefly um, is is in relationship to uh, the incredible increase that's being experienced at pregnancy, pregnancy centers across the country. Uh, the USA Today headline last week was this, greater level of desperation as COVID-19 rages on. Pregnancy centers see a surge in demand. Um, so there's a, there's a tie-in here to anxiety. There's a tie-in here to the support that is um, that is needed for women in what we will des- we will describe as crisis pregnancies, pregnancies that they did not expect to have or did not expect to have right now. Um, and pregnancy centers across the country are experiencing a volume of calls that is really unprecedented. So that leads me to encourage you to reach out to your pregnancy center in your local community and give them the support that they need. Um, to be a person who is pro-life, 
not just for the unborn, but for the person who is pregnant with that life. What does it look like for us to be pro-life right now for every life and all of life for maternal and infant health? Um, you know, what does it look like for us to be the, you know, the first thousand day people like right from conception to that child's second birthday? What does it look like for us to be, uh, you know, committed for those first thousand days to the material, spiritual and familial support of that mom? Let's give some thought to that. Reach out to your local crisis pregnancy center and see how you can help today. All right. Next up, Dr. Linda Mental. You know her from the Dr. Linda Mental show. You can also find her at drlindamental.com. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and suicide ideation among young people. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm all right song. Joining me again today, Dr. Linda Mental. You can listen to her on the Dr. Linda Mental Show. You can also find her at drlindamental.com. Linda, welcome back. Good to talk with you again, Carmen. How are you? Well, I am well. I am well. We are apparently facing um, a mental health epidemic, a substance abuse epidemic, and an epidemic of suicide right in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, probably not a surprise to those of you who work in this area all the time, but... Um, but kind of terrifying numbers for the rest of us. Yes, I've been I've been following it obviously because this is my area of of expertise. So we've been tracking mental health data all through the pandemic. There have been several studies actually conducted, and this this article that you mentioned um, from the CDC was really good at summarizing. So what it's basically saying is that there's an increase in anxiety up three times the normal, depression four times the normal. Uh, one in 10 uh, people dealing with an increase in substance use. And that number is probably low because typically when people report substance use, they under-report. So we, we, it, there's a rule of thumb actually in the therapy practice uh, realm where we always say maybe take it times eight because people so under-report their use. And then, um, you know, suicidal ideation, which is a, a, they're all concerns, but this one is a very big concern one in four in the age range of 18 to 24. And obviously we're looking at higher risk in young adults. And then a lot of minority populations, Hispanics, Blacks, essential workers, unpaid caregivers. Now that's a group that really has been ignored in this process. We are now starting to get some ideas of how this is affecting the elderly, but the people who care for the elderly those and and I I do a lecture on this every year at medical school trying to train doctors into understanding caregiver burnout in the normal times of that we have but during the pandemic this is the the daughter of someone who's elderly usually that's the caregiver and the stress associated with this uh, I have so many of my friends that are are traveling regularly to an assisted living facility can't get in are talking to their parent through the window, you know, trying to get their care organized. It's very, very stressful. So, and then if you're anybody who has a previous mental health issue, you've had, you know, anxiety prior to COVID, um, all of those issues that you struggled with prior are just going to be exacerbated during a pandemic. So we do have a lot of concern for the increased numbers. And and I'll tell you, um, I, I was listening to you talk about 
the the lack of internet you know uh, connection for kids in a lot of rural areas and in poor families it's the same with mental health you know we can do telehealth we can get on and deal with people in a in a telehealth perspective but if you don't have good internet connection and you're in a rural community and you don't have that that's a barrier to helping people and getting treatment so it's a concern in the mental health world as well um, I, I had uh, cause, reason to be in a courtroom this past week, and um, I can tell you the court system is trying to figure this out as well. So, you know, if the caseworker is not in, in the courtroom. She is uh, on the WebEx up there on the big screen, um, yeah. and, uh, and a person testifying in the case, also not in the courtroom, uh, you know, trying to, trying to log in. And, um, you know, what, what should have taken five minutes, right? took 35 minutes because that connection keeps dropping, keeps dropping, keeps dropping. There's already frustration and anxiety. Nobody, you know, nobody at court is there because everybody's happy. Right. And so I'm just saying that like, right. So we're, we're talking about school. We're talking about um, medical telehealth. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about, um, you know, getting the care to our older adults that they need. You and I have talked about figuring out how to get better resources to families who have children with special needs, um, and then, you know, I mean, on and on and on. And then we've got families that are in all kinds of stress when they do require some kind of intervention from the government. That's a challenge as well. I mean, we I think that after after the dust settles from the COVID-19 pandemic, the the broken pieces in mm. every part of our uh, in every part of our system, um, right. the broken the broken pieces are just going to be so many. Yeah, and we're going to have to really look at how we can do this. Now, you know, the good news is the church has a role here. And I I loved what you were saying about the churches really thinking outside the box, thinking about ways they can step into their community and help. And that's going to be critical even in, in all of this mental health that we're seeing, because one of the key factors in suicide is social isolation. And, you know, we've talked in the past that the church is not able to go and put their arms around people. And, you know, it's different than what happened after 9-11, where the, the church really went house to house and they were with people in a church building and they were hugging and touching and praying and, you know, being with people. That social connection is such an important key um, to helping people in terms of preventing suicide. And that's one of my biggest concerns is that we have to think of better ways to get connected with still staying safe. So uh, I'm one of these mask people. I, I really do believe that you should be wearing a mask and you should be social distancing. And I really think that that's a way to love your neighbor. Actually, I think it's a biblical kind of idea that we'll do what we can to protect other people and ourselves in this process. So it's going to be challenging to figure out ways to stay connected. I know a lot of churches are going online. I know a lot of I mean, most of them are online and that they're trying to come up with ways. But this is this is one of the things we really have to do is check on each other, stay connected, because it's one of the things that is prevention for uh, suicide. All right, Dr. Linda Mental and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Um, we want to make sure that you have the resources that you need if these are um, thoughts that you are having. Um, so stay tuned. We will be right back. All 
All right, the stress and strain and length of time uh, and the challenges of social isolation and um, the the ongoing uh, anxiety related to information changing and the requirements for things changing, um, job-related stress, lack of resources, on and on and on. The pressures upon people are really great right now. And so um, the CDC is reporting that really a, a crisis level of, of Americans um, or Americans at crisis levels are not only considering taking their own lives, but many of them doing so. And so we want to um, we want to intervene. We want to say if you are having any such thoughts, um, we want you to um, to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, uh, 160 organizations all working together um, to bring a lot of resources to bear um, when when folks have these kinds of uh, of emergent needs. So 1-800-273-8255. Um, Linda, let's, uh, let's give people uh, let some... Add, let me just add something yeah. to that, Carmen. Sorry Please. to interrupt you like that, but no. let me just add something. So as you were talking about, we're going to find out that a lot of our systems are broken and how we can help. I think a really good move on the national level was that they looked at how can we quickly connect with people who are feeling suicidal. And they did pass in July. It won't go into effect until 2022, and it feels like a long time away. But they're going to pass a national um, number, a text number, just like 911. It'll be 988, and you'll be able to text very quickly, and someone will get with you, just like a 911 number. So I think that's good forward thinking, because it's hard to remember that number you just gave. Um, People don't always remember it, but they could remember 988 and text it very quickly. So I think that's a really positive move from the government. Yeah, I also saw that Second Lady uh, Karen Pence was highlighting suicide prevention um, during a recent visit in Charlotte. And so I do think that, you know, there are lots of of folks who are aware um, that, you know, the reality is if I'm at the place where I'm having, you know, such thoughts, my... um, my isolation, Linda, I mean, you know this better than I do. My isolation may be to the point where I'm I'm sort of past the desire to reach out for help, which means right. that help is oh. going to have to come. Help is going to have to come from the outside, from others. Yeah. And and here's one of the things you can do. I, I actually just taught this uh, this program to the medical students that I that I work with. It's called Question, um, Persuade and Refer. And it's, mm. it's a lay program. It's not something that you have to be a, a professional to learn. But it's a, it's a program that teaches people how to ask questions of their fellow person, whoever's in your circle, whoever you, you know, and to question. And one of the things that's misunderstood about suicide is that if you ask somebody, are you feeling suicidal? You just ask that direct question. It does not make a person suicidal. That's a, a myth. And in fact, when you talk to people who are survivors of suicide attempts, they will tell you that if somebody had just asked me a question, if somebody had just talked to me about my feelings, I think that would have been a prevention. And so we need to be very uh, aware that we need to be asking people. That's what I meant by checking on your neighbor, where you and your neighbor, you know, in the in the Bible, your neighbor is everyone. I mean, if we look at the parable of Jesus, when they when the lawyer asked him, who's my neighbor? 
it's everyone. So it's the people that you come in contact with and you can say, how are you coping? How are you doing? And to directly ask somebody if you're questioning their, you know, their, they're maybe giving away things, they're they're depressed, they're losing pleasure in things, all the signs that we look for to say that people are slipping in a bad place. Just say, are you having suicidal thoughts? Do you need someone to talk to? Uh, can I connect you with, with someone to talk to? And that's a simple thing that everybody can do, but it's a very powerful thing. And then being able to really encourage people with optimism. Uh, one of the things, I'm so, I just, I'm upset is that the news is just constant negativity. And we don't have enough stories about people who are doing good, who are helping, who are making a difference. And of course, in the national conversation, rarely do you see a, a piece about the role of faith in a person's life. And so we have the hope of the gospel. We have our connection to Jesus Christ, which is a healing and a prevention of all kinds of things. And so our real goal is for us personally to get deeper into the Lord. You know, I was I was meditating this morning on Psalm 103, and there's two lines in there that says the children of Israel knew the deeds of God. So they knew what God did. They knew he provided manna. They knew he did all these things. But it says that Moses uh, knew his ways. And I think the deeper we get in our relationship with the Lord and the more we, we understand the ways of, of God in Christ, because we need to be compassionate, we need to care, we need to reach out to other people, we need to love our neighbor. That's one of the, the great commandments. And it means taking an interest and being sacrificial at times with our time and having conversations with people when we might be exhausted ourselves. So I think if we can give them the hope of the gospel— and help people stay optimistic that this too will pass and that you have a present help in the time of trouble. And that's where your faith can really be effective. That's a huge message that we need to get into the culture as well. Absolutely. All right. Let me remind people that inspiremore.com is a good website to uh, to visit for some of those good news stories every day. Inspiremore.com. We have we have featured them from time to time. There are some, there are good news stories out there, um, but sometimes we have to go curate them. We have to go find them uh, because they are not the things that the mainstream media is pressing out upon us all the time. So you curate your own diet of what you take in every day in terms of feeding your heart and your mind and your soul. Linda and I are both going to advocate that you spend time in the Word of God, that the good news is good news every single day, and it remains news today. It never gets old. So spend some time today in God's Word. Um, if you need that suicide prevention hotline for yourself or someone else, 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-TALK, 8255 are those digits. Um, Dr. Linda Mental can be found at the Dr. Linda Mental Show or at drlindamental.com. Linda, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Thanks. You too. We'll be right back. All right, we got all kinds of international headlines to cover today with Dr. David Aikman. Uh, the big news at the end of the week was the announcement by the White House uh, that the United States has brokered an agreement between Israel and the UAE. Um, we're going to talk about some of the reactions to that. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to forecast maybe what it means. We're also going to hit on some other headlines, particularly uh, out of Belarus. 
which um, there are tens of thousands of people in the streets in Belarus. Um, the, the president of the EU has called a meeting of the European Council for Wednesday to discuss the situation. Um, it, it appears as if that nation is in a, uh, well, on the brink, on the brink of either a major transition from uh, an authoritarian dictator to real democracy or... We all uh, tragically know the other direction that that can sometimes go. So holding Belarus in our prayers today. Those conversations up next with David Aikman. Do a simple exercise with me. Measure your life against just these four standards from the Ten Commandments. This is Max Locato. You must not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? A paperclip? A parking space? You thief. You must not lie. Those who say they haven't just did. You must not commit adultery. Jesus said if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. You must not murder. Before you claim innocence, Jesus said anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Jesus made his position clear. Anyone whose life is not holy will never see the Lord. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us drawing hope from 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ died for our sins in place of, on behalf of. So don't measure yourself by keeping commandments. Measure yourself by the cross. This is Max Lucado. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. David, I'm just going to set the ball on the tee today. Uh, The United States brokered an agreement between Israel and the UAE. What were your initial reactions to it? And then we can talk about some of the uh, some of the strains of this conversation. Well, I think it was uh, a major event because it was brokered by the White House and partly with the cooperation of Benjamin Netanyahu the Israeli prime minister, who had basically promised to annex the West Bank under Israeli sovereignty. And the White House had strongly requested that he not do that in order not to um, prevent the new peace agreement coming through. But the UAE is, of course, a major player in the Gulf area, and there are other Gulf states that might well follow its example. For example, there's Qatar, there's Oman, and all of this is going to infuriate Iran, against whom these peaceful efforts are basically directed. So it's it's a major new step in the whole Middle East equation. Does it feel like um, one, uh, the, the first of maybe a handful of dominoes? I think so, yes. Don't forget when Israel signed its peace treaty with Egypt back in, I think, 1979, it was quickly followed by uh, a peace agreement with Jordan. And that set in motion the alignment of Israel with fairly peaceful Sunni Arab states that had 
previously been hostile. And so you had Egypt, Jordan. Now you have the uh, United Arab Emirates. You've got Bahrain in the Gulf. You've got Qatar waiting to see which way the wind blows. I think it's going to lead to a major realignment internationally in amongst all the countries playing a major role in the Middle East. I do, too. I think that um, for people who want to see uh, religious hostility um, or religious animus as the ongoing you know, theme of the Middle East, um, I, I do believe that one of the things that's happening is the the advantage that is gained for your people by getting to the place where you put an ep, an economic agenda um at the forefront of the conversation i do think this has to do with um opportunities for the uae and those within the uae to invest in some of the uh innovations and and technological advancements in in israel i mean there's there's an amazing amount of capital on the sidelines in countries like the UAE that can now be invested in companies that are Israeli. Um, I, I just see the potential economic conversation, which, you know, when people have enough resources, they can then live more peaceably um, in a pluralistic environment. So I guess I'm hopeful that as the economics of this work themselves out, um, people can see the advantage of living peaceably alongside of others with whom they disagree religiously. Well, I think you're right, Carmen, because I think this whole peace agreement, or at least diplomatic agreement between the UAE and Israel, had been preceded by a lot of covert financial arrangements between companies in the UAE and Israel. And so this will simply be the cherry on the cake or the icing on the cake, making it really obvious that if you are a Sunni Arab state, you are facing Iran, and you make peace with Israel, you get security from a number of different points of view. Obviously, military, because Israel is the chief frontline state facing Iran, but also financially and organizationally, diplomatically. I think it's a major step forward. I mean, it's just potentially, uh, it, it, it's probably difficult for me to over overestimate the potential um, of this first step, of what I certainly view as the first uh, the first step of what I will hope is many or are many um, other countries uh, who who figure out um, their own unique ways to be in relationship with Israel, recognizing that every one of these sovereign countries is going to determine, um, you know, how to broker a relationship that is a little bit different. These will be um, these will not be uh, multilateral agreements. These will be these will be one at a time because each one of these countries is very unique. That's right. I mean, it, it will be a series of bilateral agreements between Israel and various um, Arab states in the Gulf, and collectively will amount to a major step forward diplomatically uh, in moving 
to an improvement in the Israeli-Arab um, equation. All right, so let's turn, um, if we're standing in Israel and we look uh, to the north, um, Lebanon is going to come pretty quickly into view. Bring us uh, bring us uh, an update on Lebanon. Well, of course, there have been continuing protests in Lebanon. The, the Lebanese cabinet officially resigned collectively last week, and, but there are ongoing demonstrations demanding not just the the investigation of who the culprits were in causing the situation to happen. It might have been an accident that it was probably precipitated by careless uh, guarding of the ammonium nitrate deposit in that warehouse. Uh, but the real desire is in Lebanon to change the political and economic system that allows generations of corrupt leaders and their acolytes to basically pillage the finances coming into the system. And it's a, it's a, a, a a society-wide protest against the corruption of the system, the corruption of political parties, and the inability of the Lebanese people to hold anybody to account. And the question is whether there are any foreign powers who are willing and able to make their financial support for the reconstruction of the country conditional on significant institutional changes and social changes within the country to make possible the kind of reform that the Lebanese want for their whole nation. All right, so a couple of uh, of storylines that we're going to watch this week related to, uh, uh, to Lebanon. One is the international appeal for funds um, to assist victims there. The other is that tomorrow uh, a United Nations-backed tribunal just outside of The Hague uh, in the Netherlands is going to um, uh, issue um, their verdict. Uh, This special tribunal for Lebanon is going to issue a verdict more than 15 years after a truck bomb assassination of the former Lebanese prime minister, Um, And so that is coming. It is coming tomorrow. These are members of Hezbollah. And so we want to be, um, uh, you know, we want to be, you know, just bathing the area in prayer that there would be no violence um, in response to the verdicts that will be issued tomorrow um, by this U.N.-backed tribunal. All right. We got to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, David Aikman and I are going to talk about the situation in Belarus. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with David Aikman, turning our attention to the nation of Belarus. Belarus has uh, a, a very close relationship with Russia. That um, That is an integral part of the conversation we are going to have. Tens of thousands of protesters gathered in the uh, capital of Belarus, that is the city of Minsk, this weekend, demanding a new presidential election. The country's recent um, presidential election 
ended when um, President Alexander Lushenko claimed victory. Uh, many, uh, many, many, many say that he manipulated the election. Um, his main opponent has fled the country to Lithuania. And um, and now I would say the the entire thing is a hot mess. David Aikman, uh, what's going on in Belarus? Well, the president of Belarus, Lukashenko, has been in power for 26 years. And the whole country has been ruled in a very authoritarian way uh, with more and more people discouraged and actually detained instead of wanting to protest. And after the announcement that Lukashenko had supposedly won a landslide majority in the elections, many protesters came out on the streets and demanded um, a cancellation of the results because they thought the results had been fraudulently obtained. And part of the demonstrations were by people who had actually been not only detained by the Belarus authorities, but actually beaten up in, in a very savage way while they were in detention and released with serious wounds visible on their hands and feet. So uh, there's a real sense of outrage at what has been happening. And of course, the fact that Lukashenko has been on the phone to Vladimir Putin, who's also been in office for uh, 20 plus years, asking for his help. And Putin said that he'd be glad to supply support for the Belarus regime. That's also infuriated people in Belarus because it looks like a partial reestablishment if not of the Soviet Union, at least of the Russian Empire at former times. When, uh, when we think of these um, former Soviet Union-related countries and we think about their ongoing relationship, I mean, 26 years, I mean, that's, uh, that's long by any standard. It's really long when you think about the way that democracy has changed in the region in that period of time. That's right. And the, the Russians have always complained about what they call the color revolution. The color revolution refers to a color like rose uh, or pink in the case of uh, Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, which changed dramatically to a democratic system of government a few years ago. And then in Ukraine, uh, also a few years ago, the Orange Revolution. So the Russians are, well, particularly Putin, is concerned that the color revolution matrix might actually be applied to Russia itself. And in the name of democratization and perhaps um, choosing a particular color as an emblem of change, there might be a, a system of alteration of the Russian political structure that removes Putin from power himself. And he's very much determined to resist that. David, when you, um, when you think about uh, maybe forecasting 
what happens next. Does part of that calculus, is part of that calculus determined by what Russia does next? And do we have any influence over that? Yes, it it certainly has. Um, it's going to be affected by whether or not Russia actually sends in security forces to prop up the Lukashenko regime. And that whether Russia does that or not also depends partly on how um, President Trump and uh, the Western allies respond to the threat or maybe the reality of Putin actually doing this. So it's one of those situations where the outside world has much more influence than appears to be the case because of what the ripple effects would be if if countries opposed to what Russia is doing really took a strong stand against Putin. All right, um, David, um, as always, uh, thank you so much. Anything, um, we, we here in the United States of America, as you know, uh, facing a presidential election, um, shenanigans related to election interference. We got all kinds of uh, bad actors on the international stage. You know, without you and I trying to trying to suss out who's interfering, just make the case for um, a fair and free election in the United States of America in terms of um, the rest of the world. Well, you know, one of the upcoming events is the so-called Day of Return on September 26th, a national day of repentance in the in the mall in Washington, where people are asked to uh, submit to God and admit that the United States desperately needs help in this stressful time. And that event, September 26th, is going to be about 40 days before the November 3rd election. So what Americans do and what the rest of the world does in response to this uh, repentance event is going to be very significant, I think, in what happens in the United States and then indirectly what happens in the world in consequence of the election. All right. That is really helpful. Um, David is referring there to um, to an event called The Return. You can check it out at thereturn.org. David, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Good. Thank you very much, Carmen, for having me on. Genuinely appreciate it. We'll be right back. The Democratic National uh, Committee Convention is going to take place this week. Um. I'm going to encourage you to be listening for those religious thread lines. I'm also going to be encouraging you to uh, listen and watch for ignored parts of the uh, constituency. Um, There are a group of Democrats that the Democrats are not going to speak to or about this week, and that that would be uh, Democrats who are pro-life. And so let's just be mindful of that. Let's be mindful of the language of the soul. You're going to hear a call uh, to restore the soul of America. Um, let's just let's just be mindful of what it means for our souls to be lost and for the soul of something to be restored. That is uh, expressly religious language, and we ought not miss it. All right, what a great day! Go out there and uh, love the Lord in the midst of the world that He so loves. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.